runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 531, testing PowerShell using PowerShell, with guest Adam Bertram. Recorded Monday, April 24th, 2017. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Adam Bertram, who is a Microsoft Cloud and Data Center Management MVP, mainly focused around PowerShell and cloud automation. He's a freelance tech writer, trainer, and presenter, doing his best to evangelize DevOps methodologies in the Microsoft ecosystem. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. And I just feel like the past few months, Microsoft sort of got their DevOps story together. Like, I know they've been working on it for years, but it seems to be resonating at long last. Yep, exactly. That's why I've, I've been so, you know, passionate and evangelistic, I guess, about this concept because, uh, you know, the Linux guys have had the, the whole DevOps movement, I guess you could say, for a long time now. And it wasn't until uh, you know, Satya got into the CEO role of Microsoft that Microsoft was really kind of made an about face and really getting involved a lot more with the community and thus really getting involved in open source and eventually getting involved with the uh, the open source move and allow us Microsoft guys to really get in there and uh, see what this whole DevOps thing is all about. Yeah, I was actually down in San Jose in 2009. I saw John Allspaw do his 10 deploys a day talk, which is it's on video yep. somewhere. It's famous. And I think it's probably the, one of the first places that DevOps was really said out loud. And I thought he was crazy at the time, but uh, he was <laughs> not wrong. And certainly one of those original folks in the in the DevOps uh, mythos, so to speak. Yep, definitely. Yeah, him and uh, Patrick Dubois and Gene Kim and all those guys. Yeah, those guys are definitely uh, mentors of mine. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it felt like Microsoft... It's not that they didn't have, know the word and have an idea. It's that there were so many different teams saying, we're doing DevOps, and we're doing DevOps, and we're doing DevOps. And so for, for us in living in the ecosystem with all this infrastructure, like, well, which way do I turn? Is this something from system centers? Is this something from studios? Is this something from TFS? Is this something from the ops teams? Like, it's, it was confusing for a long time, but it just seems a little more organized now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the whole – I think the, the one thing that really excites me the most about – DevOps is more of ops. It seems like the, the dev guys have been kind of embracing this whole automation and testing. And they're really into, you know, obviously into code. But these our ops guys, the IT professionals and sysadmins and everything are really starting to have to learn this sort of thing and really get involved in more just your typical script here and there. They're really getting involved in code and getting involved with build pipelines and deployments and all that sort of thing. So that's the part that really interests me, how ops is really kind of coming more towards the dev. And then, well, obviously, we formed DevOps. Well, and, you know, we've always built a certain amount of call code. We didn't call it code. We call it scripts. Yeah. Right. And and now we have other tooling more and more showing, like, this configuration is code mentality or infrastructure is code mentality. What I find fascinating when I'm talking to other IT folks is that they're they're trying to set standards inside of their organizations for what scripts to run. And so... 
They're sharing scripts. And I've just not seen that before. It used to be your private toolkit. Maybe it was on a floppy disk or a USB key or something. Those were your secret special tools that you ran. And the idea that you would necessarily share them with anyone, that was, that was a little odd. And so the, you know, today you see this need to actually have a managed set, a library of code that operations uses that is maintained by more than one person. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that one thing that I kind of, I like to, to say is PowerShell, especially when you write scripts, scripts are being more, they're more professional now. Before, like you said, they were kind of your personal little things little ad hoc things you had to do to kind of get things done on your own personal level. But now they're getting treated as first class code citizens because, you know, they're not only being shared around with the folks in the enterprise and things like the PowerShell gallery and Microsoft really helped out with this. Yeah. The code is really being treated not just as scripts, but as actual code now that is supporting business critical operations. And, and you have to treat it more responsibly. Like you're, you're making exactly, it, yeah. you're making it more, you know, what it's just your script. It's okay that it has that weird error message or just sort of fails or you have to know the secret parameter set stuff. But as soon as you want somebody else to use it, you're more diligent about your inputs, more diligent about your outputs. Like it's, it's gotta be better written and it's worth maintaining because you're probably going to use it over and over again. It's not a one time thing, but having IT folks say, where do I put this? Do I need source control for my PowerShell scripts? That's a fascinating place that we've gotten to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The source control thing. Yeah, that's a, whenever I first started with that, I know a lot of people are the same way. I'm like, it's, you know, you, you, it's kind of like a mentality shift. You think, well, it's just my scripts. I just do a dot back if I want to yeah. make a backup file of it. Now, what is this, the source control stuff? Oh, that's for the, that's for the devs. But as they, as you begin to progress and see more of how this all, you know, fits together, how the the software developers aren't the the other the other guys in quotes on the other side of the wall that you never talk to now. Now the ops guys, IT folks, are really starting to get in line with the devs and figure out, you know, okay, yeah, we do ops, you do dev, but how do we come together for the good of the business? And sure. generally, that's code rather that's you know automation deploying applications or uh, you know whatnot it's code is kind of the common ground that the the devs and ops are starting to to see although i think the more you learn about coding in powershell and coding with chef or anything like that the more you appreciate how different that is from building an application too there's code and there's code and they they, they do have different smells to each other uh not that anyone's easier or if you're in devops you know, if if you're not an application, you kind of have your right, code and code is really hard. To, it's really kind of hard to <laughs> to wrap wrap your head around what the difference is. But I, I consider, you know, a software developer writes applications mm-hmm. and maybe an IT pro or a sysadmin or a, a DevOps guy. We write code to deliver those applications right. to kind of write on top to kind of orchestrate those applications and configurations and how all that works. Yeah. And if you and if you don't. You know, both you need both parts. Applications are no good without the infrastructure to run them, and yep. infrastructure is not that interesting without applications that are worth running. Exactly. Yep. So they do get along. Now you've written a book on Pester, and we haven't talked about this yet. But the idea that you would write tests for your scripts—crazy talk, isn't How it? How did we get here? <laughs> what are you talking? Are you crazy? <laughs> But I guess it's, you know, as soon as you have a piece of code that you care enough about that you're checking into the source code, you have multiple people using it, and more importantly, multiple people modifying it, suddenly testing becomes a big deal. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if we were still in the age of, like you said, of, uh, you know, you have a USB key and you have a, a folder full of scripts on your personal machine and you use them as you need and nobody else is going to see them or use them. I mean, pester test test in general, probably not going to be that important, although I was I would argue that to some extent nowadays. But the key thing now is when people start thinking of of scripts as just, you know, scripts like, yeah, 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 ad hoc. The old school kind of, uh, yeah, I, I do this this little thing. I create this file over here to kind of save me some time and that sort of thing. But the part that really excites me now is that as we as we progress and the code becomes more professional, like I said, with uh, uh, supporting business critical processes and especially sharing in the community, IT pros, ops people, especially, um, they really have to to focus more on testing. We need they you, you can't just throw up a, a script out there. Well, I guess you can. I used to, you know, years ago, I've, I used to just, I wanted to share. So I throw up the scripts that then you would, you would worry about all these people, you know, tr- wanting to support it. Oh, this broke my, you know, my VM or this, you know, this did this and this did this. Right. Whenever you implement your tests with that, it's, it depends on how much you care about what you're sharing. You want to make, you want to make hundred percent sure what you're sharing actually does what it says it does mm-hmm. for sharing. And then plus for the enterprise, if it's doing something very important, it's critical that you have a set of tests on top of that to really verify that. What is a what is a pester test look like? Are you writing in PowerShell for the test as well? Yeah, actually, a, a pester test is a PowerShell module that's written with PowerShell. So it, it's kind of uh, kind of crazy to wrap your head around at first because you're actually testing PowerShell with PowerShell, but <laughs> as you as you see, whenever you start writing your pester tests, your pester tests are not, you know, they're not, they don't look like your traditional PowerShell scripts. You have right. these things called describe blocks and context blocks, it blocks and assertions. You have like all this different kind of mentality. Pester technically is just a, a DSL, a domain specific language around this particular topic in PowerShell. And really just it all comes down to just putting in the, uh, you know, your code, executing whatever you want to do. And then right afterwards, just checking, did it return the right output? Did it call the right functions based on the various parameter sets? Did it do what it was supposed to do? That sort of thing. Like we can get into unit testing and infrastructure testing. There's all kinds of different testing methodologies in there. But yeah, for the most part, Pester is just PowerShell, just applied a little bit differently. And with some additional capabilities yep. from this Pester module. And of course, open source on GitHub. This is a free tool, yep. but it's, you know, it's up to you. It is kind of up to you how to use it. And they, and I mean, they do call it BDD style testing or behavior driven development. So do you buy into a you know, sort of test first mentality that you write the description of what this thing should do before you even write it? Um, I kind of do a hybrid approach. Mm-hmm. I've tried the, uh, the, the pure TDD, the test driven development approach. And I found with the, the kind of infrastructure code that I generally write in the DevOps space, we, uh, it's pretty hard to do that. So mm-hmm. what I do is I create, before I start writing code at all, I create a pester test for it and I kind of create a, describe block and all the different individual tests that I sort of think is what it's going to do. Right. And then as I, as I write the tests, I'll make sure all those tests fail. And then once I start writing the test, I'll try to like make the test pass as I go along in a, in a pure TDD approach. But I found that you can't, I can't really write 
all the tests at first because I don't know what I want to do at first. So there's kind of some kind of some planning period in there. But this way I found is I, I have fixed, I don't know, dozens or I mean, hundreds and hundreds of different regression bugs, especially. So when I have the test and I submit it to source control, we have the script goes through the, the build process. And then somebody goes in and changes it later. I can't count how many times my tests have found problems. Right. And, and now you're also describing a development pipeline for mm-hmm. your scripts too, right? I mean, we're used to building pipelines around those production apps, but you're talking about a pipeline for PowerShell scripts. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you really wouldn't do a pipeline just for PowerShell scripts. Mm-hmm. And, and in my instance, I'm a uh, an automation engineer for a company in San Francisco, and we have a product we call Environment Orchestration. It's mm-hmm. kind of smack dab in the middle of uh, production and ops and dev. So what, what that does is the dev team has various applications and they need various configuration items, virtual machines spun up, what have you, to create a particular environment. And we have a build pipeline set up that uh, automates all this. So we, we develop the tools to give to the devs to then run to expedite all this manual configuration that they've had to do. And once they're okay with it, then we kind of scurry the code along into production and get it released that way. So we kind of have the devs had their own build pipeline for the application code. And then we have a pipeline for our environment orchestration infrastructure as code base. Right. So these are your PowerShell scripts you're building as part of the deployment of that application. And so the same way the app code gets tested, your stuff gets tested too. Yep, yep. There's a, a lot of lot of PowerShell modules, some DSC stuff in there. So it's kind of like a big conglomeration of a product that we can just pretty much you know spin up SQL servers, web servers, nice. you know, do what have you. And is it in a continuous integration state? So you make a change, you check it in, and off it goes to do the testing and integrate it into the next build. That's one thing that I'm trying to evangelize. Before I came on board, the uh, they didn't have any testing at all. And I came in and really got into uh, it, Pester and saw the benefits of it. And that's kind of the, the effort that I've been spearheading um, was trying to get this automated. Right now, we've got the team building tests, which is a, a big, <laughs> a big win. Sure. Yeah, no kidding. For, for a team that's never been building tests that finally see the advantage and kind of the next phase we're going to implement those tests into the uh, into the pipeline. Hopefully, get all that automated. And in some in testing tools around like Visual Studio and the like, there's this concept of test coverage. So you actually have an idea of how much of your code actually has tests now. Is there any way to see that from a PowerShell perspective as well? Yep, Pester has a, a code coverage um, feature on mm-hmm. it, and that uses breakpoints and, and some some things under the hood to to see how much code actually ran. So when you run your unit test with Pester. You could potentially miss lots of different branches in there. So you have an if-then-else. Maybe you you provide some parameters in there and mock a command out, and, and it only goes into the if and skips the other one. So you need to have test coverage for all those other conditions. Pester has a great feature called code coverage that allows you to Essentially, it sets breakpoints on each of the lines and can tell you which parts of your code you may have missed and that what may need some need tests. It's a really Really cool tool to uh, use. I use it um, a lot, and it's pretty easy to use since it's just uh, PowerShell. Adam, give me one second here to pay the bills because this episode of Run As is brought to you by IT Edge Intersection. IT is transforming, and the techniques and tools you've used for the past decade or more are less relevant. It's all changing. Cloud services are a reality. Automation is penetrating all aspects of operations, and software is being delivered faster than ever. 
It's no longer a safe bet to just sit and do what you've always been doing, but there's no reason to panic. The experts at IT Edge Intersection are here to help you understand how to use these new technologies, new approaches, and new techniques, all with a real-world focus that acknowledges the realities that you deal with every day. Make your job easier and up your value to your organization by attending IT Edge Intersection in Orlando, May 21st to 24th, and use the code RUNAS to get a discount on your registration at itedgeintersection.com, and I'll see you there in just about a week. Now, one of the torments, so this is a dev thing, about code coverage is everybody's trying for 100%, and I've sort of come to embrace the reality that you're never going to get there, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, a, 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 a common misconception that uh, June Blunder did a really good article on the, the Sapien blog about this was uh, a lot of people were thinking the code coverage feature, I'm not familiar with uh, the other testing framework, but mm-hmm. the code coverage feature in Pester, if you see it, if somebody runs it and says, and it says 100%, they think, oh, I've got 100% test coverage. That means I, this script is going to run perfect right. regardless of you know what happens. In reality, that's just testing how much of the code actually was executed. You know, it, it has no it has no bearing on the actual tests that are run for. I that's one of the concepts that I dive in heavily in the Pester book, where I, I demonstrate. You know, you could you could have a, a, a script that's a hundred lines long and you have a hundred percent code coverage, but you only have one single test. Right, the test could just be true. Should be true. You know, yep. the code coverage feature in Pester really doesn't verify. First of all, how many tests you have, and mm-hmm. if those tests are any good. So it's just it's just one more tool to give you an inclination of uh, how good, how broad your test suite is. Or and I also like the idea that it, that it's just showing you where you should look next to see what you haven't built tests around yet. Exactly. Yes. But yeah. I do I do appreciate the idea, and I think this is one of the things that it's harder to get through with some folks is that. Every time you have a problem with a deployment script and you figure out the bug, you write a test to validate that you had that bug so that you can show that it was there and then you fix it. And that stops that bug from reappearing in later changes. Yep, exactly. It's, it's sort of like the, um, I can't think of the, the word for it now, it, the cinch mechanism. You know, you have the, the come alongs where you crank it over and it goes click, 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 click. Right. It's clicking because it doesn't want you, it doesn't let you go back. That's how testing really is like to me, where you bring it along that, that little bar is click, 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 clicking down the gear, but you can turn it one way, but you can't turn it the other way. That's really, I really think unit tests, especially in PowerShell mm-hmm. or in, in Pester are that you can click it over and then it's never going to go back. Once you develop the set of tests that prevent that bug from ever happening again, right. you're never going to have it again, obviously. So it's a really good measurement of how reliable your code is going to be. And then you know you trust your code more in the long run. So there's a lot of different benefits to testing. I could I could go on for at least for another hour about it. <laughs> well, and I think it's, it's an important idea because, you know, we come in an IT world, we come at this a little more conservatively. I don't ever want to make the same mistake again. So it's not enough just to fix the problem, but to make sure the problem can't recur. This is where the testing infrastructure comes into play. It almost feels like it's institutional memory. You're building a knowledge base up in those tests of all the things that can go wrong. If you just fixed a code, we'd lose the fact that that could go wrong. The test is the evidence. Yep, exactly. I'd say like executable documentation. That's PowerShell and that scripts. And mm-hmm. that, that also goes back to everybody probably knows that server that's sitting in a closet that's 20 years old that nobody wants to touch because they're afraid that you know they may break something. With 
With Pester, not only can Pester do these unit tests to test your the code itself, but you can also build uh, infrastructure tests like integration and acceptance tests to go out and query various items with that that you know need to be active. You make a change, just run the test again. You can immediately see how that change affected maybe something else on the system. So it really gives the the IT professional, even even if you're not even writing scripts in general, if you write your Pester test to do infrastructure tests, so go ahead and actually query things in the environment, you can actually use Pester to not even write, to not even test code whatsoever, just to test working or non-working. So a way to stop a deployment because you're missing a critical piece of infrastructure, can't find a resource necessary to complete a deployment, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if Let's just say you're a company that's not in the DevOps. They're kind of a, a legacy company doing mm-hmm. things the old way. And maybe they're just now starting. A few of the guys just now are starting to write some some PowerShell scripts. A great way to get started with testing, even if you you don't even think you're going to get into this whole DevOps, you know, build pipeline, automated deployment stuff anytime soon. You can still leverage Pester to write tests for your existing infrastructure. So like you have Exchange Mailbox, it's... Infrastructure testing and Pester is sort of like monitoring to where it's not real time where you don't go out and ping things and get an email or a text if, if it's down. But infrastructure tests give you a way to just even for your entire environment um, right now, it records essentially records the state of where it is. And right. if anything changes, it's sort of like DSC. You can kind of uh, but Pester kind of comes on top of there and, and validates that state. That's desired state configuration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and again, some people are using that tool, some people are not. But I really like this idea that you, you can use Pester and PowerShell to validate before we deploy or, or you know, just to, as part of a scripting process for whatever you may do. Let's make sure we know where we are before we go ahead. So you can stop something long running or something complex because you know there's pieces missing that are necessary. Yep. You can check all kinds of things. You know, the code, various dependencies. Is, is a VM exist? Does the VM have the right configuration? Is this folder in the right space? You're right. It not only it's going to increase development time by probably by two or more from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, it's going to give you much more reliable code, much more reliable infrastructure. And it's definitely going to make your boss happier. So that's what's most important. And it seems like you pay that cost up front so that you can go faster later. I mean, that's always the claim to fame. I even going back to all spas, 10 deploys a day, right? It's like, how the heck do you deploy 10 times a day? Well, I'll tell you this, you're not reading through a Word doc to do it. Yeah, it's just like automation in, in general. You know, a lot of lot, whenever I try to sell the concept of automation, 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 I get back like, well, it takes too long to automate. I'm too busy closing trouble tickets and I'm too busy <laughs> fighting fires to actually implement this right. automation. Testing is exactly the same way. You're going it's going to require a significant time investment sure. and learning investment uh, up front. But as you start to get that snowball rolling down the hill, you'll see that that's how you do get to the 10 20, 50 deploys a day if you want. If you automate these more and become incrementally keep adding on to this, you'll eventually get to the point to where nearly everything is automated. That's kind of like the nirvana in the, the, the DevOps world. Sure. But it's, it, it does seem like a preventative thing. It's Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. He talks about that whole, you know, it's easy to work on the crisis. And let's face it, in the ops world, there's always some kind of crisis going on. And I, in some ways, yeah. I feel like people like that because they, at least they know what to do every day, right? Fight the fire. 
then at the end of the day, you feel good. I fought the fire. There'll be another fire tomorrow. But actually getting better is doing preventative work. And that's what all this stuff is, is preventative. Well, on the, on the flip side of that, some people say some people don't want to automate because, well, it's either going to take them out of a job or the the fact that they automated some tedious process isn't quite as rewarding to them or or as uh, visible to their boss as saying, I, you know, I just tweeted something today about troubleshooting to where if, if something goes down and you fix it immediately, you're the hero. But if you can prevent that thing from going down, nobody was ever going to know. And, you know, you don't get the no, credit. Yeah, nobody can tell when stuff just works. That's the problem with <laughs> yeah. being an IT guy. When you yeah. do your job perfectly, nobody can tell. You're invisible. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 very true. That's the uh, argument against testing. If you <laughs> if you want your your services to go down, but you want to get credit for it, don't do any testing. Yeah, you can do that whole spinning plate on a stick thing, right? I'm spinning yeah. a lot of plates here, and then you want to go on vacation, and then it's like, no, you cannot leave. You spin the plates. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of like the idea that you can go away for two weeks and not come back to disaster. Yeah, it takes a specific type of, of manager to really. And a culture, I think, to really understand, you know, there's some there's some places that really focus on trouble ticket count. How many tickets did you close today right. versus how many tickets did we prevent today? It's a yeah. lot harder to measure. Yes. But at the same time, they really think that that, well, since they don't really know, they don't really understand how to measure how many we prevented. So they're really the only measure of true success and productivity, I guess, is how many tickets did you close? That's definitely not the right way to look at it. You create a bad system, you risk bad results. I mean, good people are always going to do the right thing, but it's easier to do the right thing if you're in a system that encourages good behavior. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting trap to fall into, to just like, we are measuring bad things here. Yeah, I do think we should need to close tickets, but the best ticket is the one that never got opened. So, you know, getting better at that. Yep, exactly. That's I used to work at a, a company a while back, and, and the, the big, big thing was how many tickets were closed. And it used to drive me crazy because I would spend all this time automating a certain process to where there was, you know, and automating a certain process where there was little to no human intervention. Right. And, you know, with, with humans, humans are, are messy and yucky and make all kinds of these fat finger errors all the time. And generally, automation is going to decrease the trouble ticket count mm-hmm. considerably. Mm-hmm. And take the human out of, out of the uh, the fact, but they didn't really appreciate that I was taking five six times as long to do something that somebody else did because it really didn't have the long term vision. Whenever I said, you know, I'm going to fix this now, and it's never going to happen again, versus when somebody just would do it manually. That yeah yeah yeah, we'll just get it done real quick, and just, they don't have that forward thinking sort of vision to kind of see that snowball. Maybe that's the thing that's easier to measure. After a particular type of ticket's been open for a particular problem, the goal is to never have that kind of ticket again. Mm-hmm. Like that I could measure because at least when you had the fault once, then you have a record. We had this fault. You know, you'll see other tickets where it's like that same, we get five of those tickets a day. You've gotten fast at closing them, but we still get five a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you would get, when you got one, you you had a treatment that that ticket never occurs again. That seems to me like a really powerful way to measure that. Yeah, that is a good point. If, you, if you're actively tracking all of them, people are, you know, putting in tickets when they're supposed to be other than mm-hmm. just fixing them so we can document that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good metric. Yeah, it's, that's an exciting idea and an exciting way to present it to your boss, too. I'm not going to close any more of these tickets because they'll never be opened again because this this problem simply will not occur again. And you're sort of knocking them down. And I look at that, you know, 
the same mentality of when you see a bug in PowerShell code, you write the test to have it fail, and then you fix the code so it doesn't fail, and now you never have that problem again, at least in that form. Well, it goes, you could, you could reference, you could match, say, a trouble ticket of a bug. So match a trouble yep. ticket and a bug. If you get a trouble ticket and you, you have defined that state of broken that issued, that initiated that trouble ticket, you can actually write PowerShell can pretty much link into anything these sure. days or really any other scripting language for that matter. And to verify the broken state, verify it failed. Okay. This is the trouble ticket failed. Fix whatever you got to do. Write the code to actually verify that it succeeded. Then you know for a fact that 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 state that that trouble ticket that trouble ticket was initiated from is fixed and won't happen again if, if you keep iteratively adding on tests and tests like that. Nice. So I kind of like that idea that the result of a of a closed ticket is not just a ticket closed, but a test written. You know, a bug found, test written, a bug fixed. That would be perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. And then then you you know you now see that that's a better record of of progress of maturing of your code. Yep, and if it's if it's in code, you, you know you can. It's instead of just documentation. I did this, or I did this. Mm-hmm. Here's the code. Just run this. This is exactly what I did. You don't even really have to pay attention to my sloppy handwriting or how I <laughs> write English. Just write the code, and there it is. Nice. Now, there is a challenge I found in building test suites like this over time that when you have a major infrastructure shift or a major application shift, you suddenly have massive numbers of tests being broken. Because it's different now, and it, and it, you get to, it can be a significant overhead to go through and fix all those tests. It is. There's that's one thing that I I still struggle with, and I'm sure everybody that writes a lot of tests still struggles with that. You're always going to have that to a certain extent. If you you there's a there's some best practices that you can go through of mm-hmm. really not trying to tightly couple your tests with your your code for unit tests you're probably going to have a lot more because your code is going to change and shift over time. But sure. if you're doing infrastructure tests, for example, you can kind of make things in variables and generalize things a little bit more. Right. That way you can easily replace it just like, you know, in any kind of uh, script, you want to make it as dynamic as possible, as extendable as possible by having to go in and manually, you know, fix all these static entries in there. So rather than the name of a specific SQL server that you have to validate before you can install, it's this concept of check for the data store. And then there's somewhere a catalog that says data store at this point means this particular SQL server. But the fact that you might check for a data store in a 100 different places, the fact that you can change that pointer so that it changes for all of them at once, it's going to fix a lot of tests for you. Yep, that goes back to the the whole infrastructure as code uh, sure. piece to where you know you have a, a configuration management a database a CMDB that holds all those values of this is what's in this environment this is the server name that's supposed mm-hmm. to be in there this is all the applications and that also goes back to DSC's configuration data that's how you, the, a really good practice nice. is separating all that out because once you have all that static information the, the server name registry key names file name all this stuff that has to be that creates a particular in machine or an entire environment, since you have all this stuff in an external source, all your scripts are calling that external source. You can then have your test query that external source because you know that is the, that's the authority. So you, you don't have to actually replicate those static values inside of your PowerShell scripts rather than just have your test query that database or whatever kind of source you have all this static configuration data that's a really good way to to start making your tests easier to write and nice. more uh, extensible. 
You know how much fun it is when you start building up a DevOps practice in an organization. Like the first time ops guys come to talk to developers about how are we going to make this pipeline together? And they're like, what What are you doing in this room? Like, because often there's a barrier between there. The conversation we're just describing there sounds like something you'd talk to an architect about because you're trying to get a feel from the architecture. What are the things that are likely to change so I know what to abstract so that I can keep my test maintainable? Yep. And I think that would be a surprise for the average architect to have operations guys come in and say, let's talk about your plan a bit because I want to build good, uh, tolerant testing infrastructure for it. That, yeah, I mean, that goes back into just dev and ops working together. I, mm-hmm. I run into that constantly still. I mean, you, you just never know the other side of the story. You know, you think like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that type of, you know, Azure application or most recent one in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And I know how that works. But you never know that's the specific way that the dev is implementing that or how it relates, how it's linked to all these other things. So that the application may have multiple dependencies that, you know, ops isn't aware of. So you're right. I think an architect at that initial meeting, I would definitely say an architect role would be necessary because you need to realize, you know, all those different configuration items. Because even with a typical, just a tiny little test environment with a couple VMs, you have hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of different data points out there to define, this is what I want, or this is not what I want. So I always, always go back to testing. It's either one or a zero, it's working or non-working. You don't want, "Eh, yeah, yeah, that's working. I guess that'll work. (laughs) Might work. I'm totally with you. Yeah. It, feels like the right thing I'd want to do is I started building up this testing infrastructure. You're going to have this moment where you're like, well, what if this changes? What things are going to change? And you get tied up in knots thinking about that. It's like, you know, there's probably somebody who knows. It's the architect. This is their job. And they worry about these things all the time. If you can go commiserate, you know, get a pizza and a beer and just have that conversation with them, that gives you a sense of how you're going to be able to keep your testing infrastructure running better. Yeah, that's a great point. That's really cool, Adam. I'm excited about this. It's just, I feel like we're starting to grow up some more on how to get better and better at, at getting applications into our customers. I think so. I've, as, as long as uh, I'm still alive and I hope there's a lot of other best MVPs and others and just uh, uh, just evangelists inside of each company, it's just trying to just push forward this kind of testing concept and this whole DevOps methodology. I think even if a company doesn't truly invest into everything DevOps. There's so many different pieces that they can learn from and and get a lot out of. Yeah, Pester seems like a really valuable part of that equation. Mm -hmm. So Adam, where can people learn more about you and uh, get access to your your insights? Well, I'm at a few places. I uh, blog at adamtheautomator.com and uh, I'm on Twitter at adbertram. I do a lot of uh, photo site stuff and all kinds of books and freelance writing, but all that stuff is on my blog. Fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. 